From True Africa, I'm Claude Winitsky, and this is Limitless. In this episode, we're talking to three young climate activists. It was like, oh my God, this is an issue that is really affecting me. That is when I decided to resign from my job and move into climate activism fully. Africa need to wake up and start leading by example. Welcome to Limitless, the podcast that asks the questions that matter for Africa. We're looking for African solutions to African problems. In each episode, we're asking three guests one question that matters to Africans. And, no surprise, they don't always agree. The Limitless podcast is supported by the U.S. Department of State and the Scene Fire Foundation. Climate change is one of the most important issues the human race faces. Global warming will affect where we live, what we eat, and what we breathe. You're probably already seeing the effects of the changing climate where you live. And it's young people who are going to be affected the most. So I'm delighted to introduce three young climate activists from around the continent who aren't sitting back as the temperatures rise. First up, we have Kaliso Miataza. She's an 18-year-old South African climate activist from Soweto, Johannesburg. Our producer, Timfo Lekher, spoke to her. You describe yourself as an intersectional climate activist. That's really interesting. What does it mean and how did you get into climate activism? I think climate activism for me perfectly encapsulates who I want to be as an identity because it's such an intersectional issue, just like gender and just like, you know, racial politics and racial justice. So firstly, for me, one of the things that really intrigued me about the climate justice movement was my obsession with ancient Egypt. And I know this sounds far-fetched, but I can explain. So basically, I read somewhere that the patterns of the Nile were changing because of climate change. And for me, I was really, really distraught because I'm obsessed with with learning about ancient Egypt and ancient African kingdoms. And so I decided to read about the implications of climate change impacting the patterns of the Nile, you know, the implications on Ethiopian people and Egyptian people and every country that the Nile runs across. And I I got intrigued by that. And then there was this opportunity with the South African Institute of International Affairs, whereby I could do a research project about the intersection of gender and climate justice. And so there it became deeper and it was like, oh my God, this is an issue that is really affecting me, that disproportionately affects the African continent, affects agriculture in the African continent. It affects women in the African continent. Before, I didn't see myself identifying with this movement. And I can't call myself pan-African. I can't call myself feminist. I can't identify with activism if I don't do anything about the climate change and spread awareness about it. Do you think that now we are starting to do enough education, especially for young people, around what the climate crisis really is? I don't think that there is enough education around it. And firstly, I think the prob- the first problem is that the education around climate change is very abstract. It's not brought back and it's not taught at a very grassroots level. Okay, yes, there's going to be a two degree, incre- a two degree Celsius increase. So what is the danger of that? The problem is not that the education is not there. It's just that the education is very abstract. The other problem with climate change education is accessibility and language. Language means accessibility. And so simplifying language It means that you're understanding the context of the space. So what needs to happen is that climate change education needs to be accessible in like all 12 
um, South African official languages or that we need to simplify the way that we explain things and also use examples because the reality is that people do know that climate change is happening but they don't put the word climate change to the things that are changing and so bringing climate education like bringing climate ed- education to the people in such a way where they understand what is happening and when you're giving examples of what has changed and what they know has changed then people are able to understand that we know that this issue exists, but we didn't know that we could connect it to this term. It's literally just about connecting the practical world to these terms that we and this jargon that we keep using. What is your advice for young people who are getting into the space as young climate activists? My first advice would be that you need to take care of yourself. You cannot take care of other people if you don't take care of yourself. I think one thing that was very, very difficult for me in my advocacy journey was like not taking care of my mental health whenever I learn about these things because, you know, learning about the climate climate change and learning about climate justice and the just transition, those things can be very sad and very daunting sometimes. So taking care of myself and like understanding that the political is not separate from the personal has been very, very important in terms of like preventing activist burnout. Our second guest is Kemo Fati, an environmental activist from the Gambia. He's the founder of Green Up Gambia, a group of 500 volunteers who planted more than 24,000 trees and reforested more than 15 hectares of degraded lands. Kemo first became interested in climate activism because of migration. He witnessed many young people trying to leave the Gambia for Europe. His brother was one of those people who left. So, Kemo, why did you choose to get involved in climate activism? So I think the need for climate activism came from recognizing the problem that these people who are leaving our country and the land that is getting empty, they don't have a reason to stay because the only factor of production that they have in abundance, the land, is getting damaged. The only way those people cannot migrate is when we have abundance and our land is still good. This is where we had to focus on the land. And because of the impacts of climate change on the land, it seems as if, you know, this is our diagnosis that once we fix the problems of the land, once the land regains its productive capacity like before, people will have, you know, better yields, income levels will rise. And of course, you know, there will be no need for people to go because most of these push factors are like comfortable homes, you know, salaries and jobs. These are the basic reasons why these people go because they can't find these things here. So Mm -hmm. this is how, you know, I have moved from advocating for, you know, irregular migration because it's a crisis as at this time in the Sahel here. And of course, you know, linking it to the true cause. What have you learned since you started on this journey of climate activism? Well, as an Personally, at my own level, it has helped me to realize that, you know, what life is all about. Because some of the things I never really take time to pay attention to, for instance, you know, the nature that we have around us, you know, how people are relating with their immediate environment. These are things that I never really bothered about, you know, before my brother left for this dangerous journey. And I don't know where, when I will see him again or if he will even make it. It made me to see the world a better way because one, I actually, you know, because as a youngster, you know, you always have this Wall Street dream of making it, you know. But at that point, you know, it didn't really matter to me anymore. 
What matters is that why can't everybody live, you know, happily and peacefully with what they need? So I started moving from that need need basis thinking, and I realized that somehow our problems are not, you know, unsolvable. They are just adding fuel to the fire because of the systems in which we have used to govern ourselves. So I realized one thing, that all these problems that we are seeing, we brought it on ourselves. And we can collect, we can remove it on ourselves, but we need to do it collectively. Mm -hmm. The power of an individual cannot be underestimated, but the power of communities also is something that can really move mountains. When all people at all places come together, you know, to fight for, you know, each order, you know, to be your brother's keeper. I'm wondering how you think Africa's approach needs to be different from other continents' approach to the climate issue. Africa seems to be repeating the mistakes of the Europeans. Now that we have, uh, you know, we are underdeveloped, what we have to build is not yet in place. The systems that we wish are coming, but not full. So we now have to think smartly. You know, most of the infrastructures in Europe are built on fossil fuels. You know, they are trying to phase out from coal and bringing in, you know, solar powered and all kinds of renewable energy. But in Africa here, we are building our development infrastructures, modern development infrastructures on fossil fuels. So it's like, you know, Africa need to wake up to this doomsday calling and start leading by example. Mm -hmm. But we are here today. We have crossed many of the planetary boundaries that the climate, the, the scientists have, you know, put forward to us. So we are scared. During my time as a child, even in my own home here, we could see all these animals. We have local names for elephants, zebras, lions, but today the children don't even know the local names. We don't even have a single big cat here except the hyena. You know, we are taking a flimsy approach to this. We are destroying the product of millions of years of evolution that our continent is lucky to house. Our third guest is Davis Rubin, a Ugandan environmental activist. He's part of the Rise Up movement, alongside the Ugandan climate activist Vanessa Nakate. She campaigns alongside Greta Thunberg. So, Davis, how did you get involved in climate activism? Well, uh, it, it all started in uh, 2019, and... Uh... Just to give you a brief background, I was a classmate uh, with Vanessa Nakate. And so after our graduation, uh, we're all looking for different things to do, what to do with our lives and careers and so on, that I started seeing her stand on the streets with the, the placards and messages about climate change and messages about the climate crisis. Definitely, I had no idea what she was communicating. And uh, it was from this point that I reached out to her and to inquire what is this that she's, she's uh, trying to put across, what is climate change, because we were not so much aware about it, despite the fact that it was already happening in our communities, uh, despite the fact that it was already happening in uh, our neighboring countries. We used to see the effects of climate change, but we could not really uh, pinpoint that uh, or come to the knowledge that these were the effects of climate change. We thought these were just uh, the usual currencies that happened. So I reached out to her, and she uh, started to uh, give me more details about climate change. And it was through those continuous engagements that later on I, I managed to know uh, a wider view of climate change and the climate crisis. Vanessa is now a very well-known activist in the climate um, space. She's probably 
the best known activist, but why did you also decide to get involved? So um, uh, through this continuous engagement, by then I was, uh, I had got a job and I was working as an accountant, assistant accountant in a, uh, in a banking institution by then. As, as I started getting involved in activism, I saw that it, it would need more time. It would need more time if I was to make more impactful change. And uh, during the first lockdown, that is when I made the, I'll call it a career changing decision. That is when I decided to resign from my job and move into climate activism fully. It'd be great if you could tell us about the Rise Up Climate Movement as well and what you're trying to achieve there. Our aim is to do different campaigns uh, that are targeting to create more awareness about climate change. Uh, I'll give an example of the previous campaigns that we have been doing. Uh, we have been doing a campaign on the on loss and damage. Uh, uh, that's the, the, the main uh, campaign that Rise Up Movement is doing right now. And the reason why we are focusing so much on the loss and damage is because we believe that there are communities that have been impacted by climate change, but it's very hard for them to recover. Uh, they need climate finance. They need funds to help them recover because not all that is lost can be recovered. So that is the main uh, role of the Rise Up movement to amplify, but also to create awareness about different disasters that are happening. Tell us about what you hope to see in the next few years that would be considered a bit of a victory for you and your fellow activists. Uh, We need to see uh, more youth given access uh, to spaces where they can amplify their voices uh, despite of their race, despite of uh, which country they come from. Uh, we, we long to see a country where there is equity, where there are reparations and communities are working hand in hand to build back better from the climate crisis. These three young climate activists from around the continent are all trying to protect their home in their own way. And they all know that there are no simple answers when it comes to climate change. But Caliso, Camo and Davis are coming up with solutions and that gives me hope. Africa's potential is limitless and we can be optimistic because our future is in their hands. Thanks for listening. To find out more, visit www.trueafrica.co slash limitless or follow True Africa on Facebook and Twitter. Join in the conversation using the hashtag LimitlessAfrica. You've been listening to Limitless. I'm Claude Grinitsky. The Limitless podcast is a production of True Africa. This podcast is made possible with a grant from the U.S. Department of State and the Scene Fire Foundation.